continue our study in 1 Samuel, so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 20. King Saul is on a search and destroy mission, making multiple attempts on David's life with this national song, this song of the hero ringing in his head. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul tries to kill David at dinner, but he escapes the throw of his spear twice. Saul tries to kill David in battle by sending him out to fight against the Philistines, but David escapes that as well. He has victory twice, once for Saul and once for his daughter's hand in marriage. Saul becomes less covert about his attack on David and becomes more overt, makes it more obvious that he's attacking him. And uh, we saw in chapter 19 that he talks to Jonathan about it, but Jonathan dissuades King Saul from killing David. And so David returns to serving under Saul. And yet the next time that David goes to fight against the Philistines, he wins. And what happens? But Saul gets jealous and he gets upset that David is winning. And God protected him then through his wife, Michael, and is uh, David's able to escape. And as he escapes, he heads to Naoth, uh, a city that's not too far away, and he, he is saved there or protected by Samuel, the prophet. God uses that opportunity as Saul's men start to chase him to turn them from bounty hunters and killers into worshipers of God, at least temporarily. And Saul comes and does the same thing. He ends up prophesying to God rather than killing David. Well, here in chapter 20, Saul's pursuit of David continues, and this is going to be the way that it is until Saul dies effectively. God has been merciful to David, protecting him from both covert and overt attempts on his life and God's used, used a couple different kinds of means, ordinary means like his friends, Jonathan, his wife, Michael, his, his friend, Samuel, but also extraordinary means like the prophesying um, that he caused the people to do. He's used those means to protect David from death, but the manhunt on David by Saul is far from over, and what David is going to need if he's going to be protected from the rage of the king who knows that his dynasty is about to end, is he's going to need protection from God. He's going to need to find refuge in God. And here, in chapter 20, God is going to rescue David from the hand of Saul through the care and the sacrifice of a close, godly friend. So let me read, um, let me read uh, the first 23 verses of our text to uh, get an idea of where we're at, and then we'll, we'll um, study it together. This is the Word of God. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why would my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So 
So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is a new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says, It is good, your servant will be safe. But if he, Saul, is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go out into the field. So both of them went out to the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day, and you shall remain by the stone Ezel. I will shoot there. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad saying, Go, find the arrows. If I specifically say to the, to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them, then come. For, this is safe, for there is safety for you and no harm as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you. Go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. This evening we're going to see that God sometimes protects the righteous through the care and sacrifice of a close, of a close friend. David here is confident that Saul wants to kill him and Jonathan doesn't think that's the case. And so David wants to make sure. He doesn't want to come into the presence of Saul unless he knows for sure that Saul is not intent on killing him. And so they together devise a plan where they're going to find out what Saul's real intentions are. That's what this whole passage is about. So the first thing we see is that refuge, the refuge of God that comes through the care of a close friend. Verses 1 to 23. And then we'll see the refuge of God that comes from the, through the sacrifice of a close friend. So first, the refuge of God that comes through the care of a close friend. David here is running from Saul. He's afraid of Saul. Um, Saul has sent his messengers after David, remember, to Naoth. And God protected them, protected him miraculously. But David cannot, cannot just come back into Saul's service again. Apparently, Saul went back to Gibeah and some things had settled down over time. And as time passes, David meets in public with Jonathan. And David here in verse 1 claims integrity 
and he can't understand why Saul would want to kill him. Notice his claim of integrity, the middle part of verse 1. What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he's seeking my, my life? So if I've done something, then can you just make it known to me? I, I, I'm happy to talk about this with him, but, but is there something, some wicked way in me that I'm not seeing? And, and for Jonathan, from his perspective, so from David's perspective, he sees that he's on the brink of death. Jonathan, from his perspective, says, no, you're not. My dad's not going to kill you. How can Jonathan think that, that Saul was not trying to kill David? Did he not know about what we know about in chapters 18 and 19? Well, certainly he knew about the target practice at dinner, right? When he threw the spear two times. Jonathan would have been in attendance for that. And he knew about his intent in the beginning of chapter 19 when, when Saul said, I'm going to kill this man. And that's when Jonathan says, well... Hold off, Dad. You know, he hasn't done anything. You'd be killing an innocent man. Look at verse 6 of chapter 19. And notice Saul's response to Jonathan's reasoning here. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So the last record that we have of Jonathan knowing anything about Saul's intent is this one right here in verse 6. The last he's heard from his father... His father has no intention of killing David. In fact, he's made a covenant between himself and God. As surely as the Lord lives, I will follow through on my promise. That's the idea of that that promise, that covenant that he's making. So as far as Jonathan knows, there's nothing that that his father's going to do. Now, apparently what happens between verses 7 and the end of the chapter, the end of chapter 19, uh, apparently Jonathan doesn't know what's going on. And so um, that's probably why he, he thinks his father is back on good terms with, with, with David. Well, David is not satisfied. Back in chapter 20, David wants to know for sure. And he, he, he thinks that Saul has seen the relationship that David and Jonathan have. And as a result, Saul is keeping information from him. Now, this is the crown prince, Jonathan. He's, he's set to, to take over the throne and he would be one of, if not the chief advisor to King Saul, Jonathan should know everything. Jonathan's saying, I, I don't know anything about him coming after you. So, um, But what, what David is saying here in verse 3 is, well, he, he knows our relationship. He knows that you love me and I love you. He knows that, that God is on our side. And um, so that's why he's keeping it from you. In verses 4 through 8, David makes plan to bring Saul's intent to the, service, to, to the surface. Jonathan... Uh, lovingly and based on his covenant is committed to David. So Jonathan says, I don't see it. I don't see how Saul's going to kill you. But notice verse 4. He says to David, but whatever you say, I'll do it. So you come up with a plan in order to reveal this, to bring Saul's intention to the surface, and I'll do it for you. Jonathan um, is, is committed to protecting, to help protect David. And so David comes up with a plan. They're supposed to eat together. This new moon is the first day of their month. They had a lunar calendar, so every time the, the new moon came, that was the first day of the month. And they would eat on that day. That was actually a festival day where they would celebrate um, God's provisions. And, and um, so this was a day that they would always be together. And so David says, well, I'm supposed to eat on that day. And in verses 6 and 7, he says, I'm going to skip that dinner and I want to find out if Saul is upset. So if, if he asks you for a reason for why I'm not there, then you make an excuse for me. And, and um, it's not clear 
whether David really did have intentions. It seems like he doesn't have intentions to go back home and, and have the sacrifice with his family. It seems like this is just a, a bold-faced lie. So we're not, you know, I don't think the Scriptures are condoning what he does here. Just because the Scriptures report something doesn't mean that, that it condones it. Okay? There's all, all sorts of activity that goes on in the Scripture that it does not condone. In this case, lying would not be condoned by God, and we know that from other parts of Scripture. Um, so, so the, but the point is that David wants Jonathan to make an excuse for him. And if Saul is fine with the excuse, then David will know that he's safe. But if Saul is not fine with the, the excuse, if he rises up in anger, then Jonathan will know, and Jonathan can get that message to David. And notice verse 8. Here we see the integrity of David. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. David says to Jonathan, listen, we have a covenant with one another that we're going to stay committed to one another all the way until the end. That, that you're going to, to have my back, I'm going to have your back. And so if you see any sin in me now, just expose it. Make it clear to me now. Um, because because I, I don't want to be given over to your dad and, and what he's going to do. So, so make it clear to me now. And I think this is a, an expression of David's integrity. Listen, I haven't done anything deserving of your father's wrath. Verses 9 to 17, um, Jonathan vows to protect David. And verses 9 through 11 here, Jonathan promises to meet with David and tell him of any evil plans. The problem is that if Jonathan is being followed by some of Saul's servants, right? If Saul is so intent on killing David, then he's also going to be not only watching out for David, but he's going to be following Jonathan, having some, some of his servants or spies follow after Jonathan so that if they ever do meet, that, that um, Saul can know about it. And so Jonathan knows that he's going to be followed, apparently, and so they've got to figure out a way in which they can pass off this message that Saul is angry or not angry. And that's what's going to happen in verses 18 to 23. But before we get there, what we find is this section in verses 12 to 17 that really, if you took it out of the Scriptures, you could make complete sense of this story. Right? You have David trying to find out what Saul's intentions are, and then the plan begins in verse 18. On the new moon day, if he asks about you, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to come and get you. But in verses 12 through 17, what we have is a section that doesn't seem to be that important unless we recognize what the, the topic of the, the uh, section is. And in verses 12 through 17, what we find is that it's all surrounded around this covenant that they have with one another. That Jonathan says that we, because we have a covenant with one another, you can be sure that I will, I will be on your side. And it's this covenant that is just repeated from chapter 18. So go back to chapter 18 because that's what's, what I think he's alluding to here. Uh, Jonathan's alluding to is this covenant that, that they had made with one another. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now turn over to back to chapter 20 and notice that this covenant is what compels Jonathan to, to reveal the information that his father is going to give. Verse 12, Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord 
the God of Israel be witness, when I have sounded out to my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. So those words right there are are a trigger for us, should be a trigger for us in our mind that this is talking about a covenant relationship. If I don't tell you the results of my father's intentions, then let the Lord do so to me what Saul intends to do to you, David. So let the Lord kill me is what he's saying. In other words, I promise to follow through on this based on this covenant that we already have. And then at the end of verse 13, and may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. Then in verses 14 through 17, Jonathan asks for David to renew his vow and to expand it. So Jonathan's not only uh, assuring David of his own intentions, I will stay true to my covenant before the Lord that I'll tell you what happens, but David, I'm asking you to renew your covenant with me and I want you to expand it so that after I'm dead and gone and you are the king... I want you to care for my family. Okay, so notice that in verse 14. If I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? So, so stay on my side all the way till the end. Jonathan's asking of David. And then verse 15. You shall not cut off your loving kindness. That's the word for loyal love. You shall not cut off this covenant love from my house forever. So he's saying, if I die, I want you to still show favor to my house. One of the things that that happens when it comes to the, the turnover of kings in the ancient Near East is that the new king, in order to protect himself and his throne and his future dynasty, he, he kills the former king, or he kills the, the, the family of the former king. You see this throughout history, even up, in through, up through um, England, uh, where, where there's, there's just all these families being killed because anybody who is a threat to the throne is is a problem. And so they just get rid of that problem. And so what Jonathan is saying is, listen, I expect that God will put you as king and what I don't want to happen is when you get there, to all of a sudden back off on this covenant that you had with me. And so even if I'm not around, don't do any harm to my family. He asks him to renew the covenant and expand it to protect Jonathan's family. And that's what David does. On the basis of this selfless covenant that David has that even when I come into power it will not be in my best interest to keep your family alive but I'm going to do it because of my covenant with you and my love for you. Now, of course you know the rest of the story uh, if you've been around church for a while and you know that, that Jonathan does end up dying the same battle that his father dies and, and then uh, David is responsible for Saul's family, for Jonathan's family specifically. And David follows through on that that vow that he makes here. In verses 18 to 23, Jonathan plans to send word to David about the outcome. And so they come up with this plan. On the third day, David would go to this meeting place. It's a specific stone that, that he could hide behind. And Jonathan would shoot three arrows out into the field and use this code language to tell David what he found out. If he said, the arrows are over there, they're on the side of you, then that means that Saul's, Saul was not angry. He's not coming after you. He's okay with you missing dinner. He's not going to kill you. But if he said the boys are beyond, or the arrows are behind you to the boy, 
then that means that you are in danger and you need to leave. So just take off right from there as soon as you hear that, um, that code language. And the plan was that David would, as soon as he heard the phrase, the arrows are beyond you, that he would leave. And, and one of the purposes of that was, like, why not just go out to the stone and tell him that? Uh, because that's what ends up happening anyway. They end up coming out together. We're going to talk about why that is. But, but I think part of it is Jonathan doesn't expect to have an opportunity to come out to that stone and talk to Jonathan. He's ex- uh, Jonathan doesn't have a time, an opportunity to come out and talk to David. Excuse me. And he wants to keep it secret from the, from the little boy who's his, his servant be, and from anybody who's kind of watching on, suspecting anything going on. And so he keeps it in, in code language there in order to protect David. In verse 23, there's a reminder about the covenant. And so here we have, in the first 23 verses, the plan is set. Jonathan is set out to find out what Saul's intentions are to see if he really does want to kill David. And then the escape plan is also set so that David can get out of there without anyone from Saul's uh, army or Saul's bidding can, can go after him. Well, in verses 24 to 42, we see that the refuge of, uh, we, we see the refuge of God that comes from the sacrifice of a close friend. So the, sac- the refuge of God that comes from the care of a close friend, this ongoing loyal love covenant relationship, but now the sacrifice of a close friend. And the reason I say sacrifice is because Jonathan's actually going to have to, to risk his own life in order to find out this information. And I think he's aware of this going in. So first... In verses 24 through 29, we see that Saul discovers that David is gone. So David hid in the field, the text says, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. And then Jonathan rose up and Abner sat down by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it's an accident, for he's not clean. Surely he's not clean. It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, for he said, please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away, that I may see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the king's table. So the first day of the new moon festival, David's gone, and Saul thinks, well, he's probably ceremonially unclean. He can't come and participate in this form of worship to God because he's not, he's not clean. And so that would make sense to King Saul. And since David was a man of integrity, he certainly would have made that right with God before coming to the table. But when David was gone the second day, Saul knew something was up, didn't he? And so he asked. And Jonathan gives him the excuse that they agreed upon. And here in verses 30 and 31, Saul's anger is aroused. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Here, Jonathan puts his own life at risk in protecting David. And Saul turns on Jonathan because he sees that Jonathan is not being impartial. He sees that Jonathan is not on his side, King Saul's side. 
but rather that he's playing sides. He's actually taking David's side. That, that, and the way that Saul looks at it is this is an act of betrayal by you. And that's why he says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. He's saying you are a perverse rebel like your mother. But not only that, Saul also felt that Jonathan was bringing disgrace to the family. So he calls him this name and then he says, did I not know that you chose um, the son of Jesse, that's David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? So in other words, you're bringing shame. The, the idea of mother's nakedness is an idiom for the mother who bore you. So he's saying, you're bringing shame to yourself and your mother by protecting this fugitive. This guy who is an enemy of the state. You're protecting him and you're bringing shame to your family. You're bringing disgrace. Saul believes that Jonathan is taking sides with his mother who will eventually destroy the dynastic line. And so Saul shows Jonathan the seriousness of his siding with David in verse 31. He says, if David lives, then the kingdom will not go to Jonathan. Do you realize what you're giving up here, Jonathan? You are next in line to become the king and if you take sides with him, you will make it possible for him to usurp the throne and eventually take it over. Now, this is ridiculous thinking on the part of Saul because we, we know the rest of the story. We know what's happened before. We know what Samuel's told to Saul. I mean, Saul should know that this, the kingdom is not going to continue to, be, to, to, to continue in his family. But rather, chapter 15, verse 28, it would be given to another man that is better than him. But somehow, Saul in his mind got this idea that even though God has already made it clear what his plan is, that he was going to over power God. Jonathan had no problem with this, that that David would be king. Remember in chapter 18, he gives David his, verse 4, chapter 18, verse 4, he gives David his robe and his, his armor just to show, hey, listen, here's the princely robe. You're next in line to be the king. Saul's anger is aroused and then Jonathan protects David in verse 32. Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? So this sounds very similar to what he said in chapter 19 when he was protecting David. Listen, if you kill David, you'll be killing an innocent man. He's actually been on our side. He's our national hero. He's killed the Philistines. He's killed the greatest of their champions. And so, why would you now kill him? What possible reason do you have to kill this man who is on our side? What did he do? This is what David asked of Jonathan. Remember in verse 1? He said, what did I do? What is it that I've done to to make your father want to kill me? In verses 33 and 34, Saul explodes in anger trying to kill Jonathan. Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put him to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. So here you have David trying to convince Jonathan, listen, Jonathan, Saul wants to kill you. Or Saul wants to kill me. This is what David's trying to say. Jonathan, your dad wants to kill me. Jonathan says, no, 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 no. He promised that he wouldn't kill you. He's probably just having one of his episodes. You know, he gets over it after some time. And David says, no, I'm telling you, he wants my head. I'm one step away from death, Jonathan. Jonathan says, fine, what do you you want me to do? David says, go find out. Make an excuse for me when he asks why I'm not at the festival meal. So Jonathan gives the excuse and 
and Saul tries to kill Jonathan with his spear. And Jonathan's response is, you know what, maybe David was right. And I think my father does want to kill him. Now, it seems to be clear. Isn't that funny how the text is written there in verse 33? It says, Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down, so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put him to death. So it wasn't clear before when he's aroused in anger in verses 30 and 31. But now when he throws the spear at Jonathan, it's very clear, my dad wants to kill him. Well, in verse 34, Jonathan gets up mad and doesn't eat the next day because Saul had dishonored David. See, see what Saul is concerned about? Saul is concerned about the dishonor or the disgrace of his own family. You, Jonathan, are going to disgrace yourself and your mother. And do you know what Jonathan's concerned about? The disgrace of David. David is an innocent man, a man of integrity, and you have disgraced him. So Jonathan's not mad that his dad has thrown a spear at him or that he's been dishonored by his father, but because his father has dishonored David. And so here we see a contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan is more concerned about someone else rather than himself. Saul is concerned only about himself. Well, in verses 35 through 42, Jonathan sends word to David as he promised. After a day, Jonathan goes out in the field to inform David And he gives out this coded message. Now it came about in the morning, verse 35, that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David and a little lad was with him. And he said to this lad, Run, find now the arrows which I'm about to shoot. And as the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. And when the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. And Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. So just as planned, he's going to let the little boy know about, or he's going to let David know by sending this message, this coded message, is not the arrow beyond you. And again, the boy didn't know what was going on and Jonathan finds an opening to talk with David. So again, I think initially he's, Jonathan's expecting that he's going to have some of Saul's spies nearby watching to see what's going on. But apparently, when he actually gets out there to do it, the only person that he had, other than himself, was this little boy. So if he could get the boy to get the arrows and then send him on his way, he would have this opportunity to go and talk to David. So he finds an opening and uses it to say goodbye to David. They would only meet one more time before Jonathan died. And they wept together in verse 41, and then Jonathan sends him away in peace in verse 42. This is... Uh, quite amazing that, that Jonathan would say something like this, go in safety or go in peace, right? When he's got the king of Israel that wants to kill him. But the point is, is that Jonathan's saying, listen, I'm still committed to you. I know my father wants to kill you. I, I know that he's going to have a lot of men after you. But what I want you to know is that I'm committed to you. Jonathan goes back into the city. First Samuel 20 is the story of a friendship between two men that is marked by care and sacrifice. But ultimately, it's a friendship that is 
grounded in a concern for not themselves, but for God's glory. And it's bound together, it's knit together by a covenant of faithfulness to God and to one another. And again, we see this sharp contrast between Saul and David. But also we see this contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Saul is concerned about his kingdom, his legacy, his dynasty. And Saul will do anything that is necessary in order to get what he wants to protect that throne. But Jonathan, like David, is primarily concerned about God's rule, about God's choice. And God has already made it clear that David will be the successor to the throne. And Jonathan will not stand by, no matter the family ties, he he will not stand by while his father tries to thwart God's plan. Instead, he's going to stand up and be a an instrument in the hand of God to help protect David because he had this covenant with David before God that I will love you and protect you and be on your side. So let me just uh, leave us with a point of application here. It is this. Don't let your sinful aspirations destroy your closest friends. Don't let your sinful aspirations destroy the relationship that you have with your closest friends. One of the great complexities of sin and its consequences is that our sin can destroy relationships. One thing that you probably have experienced if you have, again, if you have been a Christian for any period of time is that your sin affects more than just you. That it affects people around you. That when we pursue the things that we want, we may start out by, you know, I don't want to hurt those closest to me. But but do you know what happens is as that sinful aspiration becomes more and more of a desire and a lust, something that we have to have, we start to cast off these things that we once treasured. You know, I, I want this relationship that is close to me. I want it to be good. I want it to be healthy. I don't want to hurt them in my pursuit of this sin. And what happens is we come to love this sin more. We care less and less about protecting that relationship, don't we? And eventually what happens is that in the pursuit of that idol, we turn out to hurt the person that we love most or the people that we love most. This is Saul, right? He wants the kingdom. He wants it to remain in his family and to continue on in his family after he's dead. But when the kingdom is threatened to be taken away, he will do whatever it takes to get that prize. He will deceive, manipulate, attack, harm, do whatever it takes and leave a wake of disaster behind him. Right? He's like Gollum from Lord of the Rings who, who can't stand the thought of being without that ring to the, port, to the point where it consumes him and changes him and causes him to go to the greatest extremes to get what he wants. And in the end, his lust for that ring destroys him. Spoiler alert, okay, if you haven't seen it or read the books. But that's what destroys him because he's after that thing that he wants and he doesn't care about anything else. I hope you recognize that any one of the sins that you treasure, any one of the sinful pleasures that you enjoy can become like that ring or like that pursuit that Saul has of protecting his kingdom. That it starts out as something that's just small and then eventually it becomes, it consumes us so that's all that we think about. 
and we don't care what happens to someone else at some point. So let me just ask you, what is it that you would do anything to, do, to get or to keep? What is it that you would sacrifice in order to get or to keep? Maybe for you it's your image, how people view you. You know, as long as people view me in this light, then that's fine. And so if, if something starts to, to, to cloud that image of how people see me, then I'm going to start making hay. Maybe it's your pursuit of a position in your company or at church. Maybe it's a material item. Maybe it's just peace and quiet for once. And if, if I can't have at least my a few minutes of peace and quiet, and people are going to feel my wrath, maybe it's your recreation time. Maybe it's something good like a well-behaved family. None of these things are inherently evil, but, but when they become our primary pursuit in life, we become like a vicious dog who has had his bone taken away from him. Or, or like a rattler who is ready to strike. If anyone comes near what we are trying to protect, the thing that we want most. Here's a good way to tell what it is that you love most. Like for Saul, it was his throne. Ask yourself these questions. What is the thing that drives you to lash out in anger? So think about the last time that you blew up in anger. Think about the worst time that you blew up in anger. What was that about? That, that helps to show you what it is that you value most. Or, or this question, you know, what is it that, that, that causes you to... to what, what drives you in the morning, right? What is it that drives you that says, you know, this is what I'm working for today. This is what I want to get to, this point or this thing. We, we lash out in anger because we don't have maybe this material item that we want or we don't have our spouse's attention and affection or, or maybe we don't have the amount of recreation time that we are expecting. Someone ruined an item that we treasured. could be material, could be, could be just an image. Maybe we got looked over at, a most, at our most recent, uh, recent promotion. What is it that makes you angry? That will give you a window into your heart as to what you desire. Sometimes we desire these things to the exclusion of God. And so let me encourage you this evening to talk to God about it. Confess your sin. Say about your sin what God says about it. Idolatry. God, I've taken something like Saul and I have taken something that you have given me as a gift and now I've made it the center of my life to the exclusion of you. I have dethroned you and I've, I've turned this thing into an idol so that it consumes me. That's confession. We're saying to God about our sin what God says about our sin. Ask for God to cleanse and change you. You know God promises to do that? That if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to do what? To cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So He not only promises to forgive you but to change you. So ask Him to do both. And then think of specific ways that you can keep, keep that thing from becoming your idol. So, for example, if your idol is a well-behaved family and you lash out whenever your kids act up in public because it affects your public image, the antidote is not to just allow your kids to run wild. Okay, The antidote is... It's not to just, hey, you can just do whatever you want because I don't, it, it, it's not my 
my idolatrous item anymore, right? My well-behaved family. The, the answer is to get past that. And, and one of the ways that we need to do that is just to ask the question, what is the answer? How is it that I can have a desire for a well-behaved family while at the same time not making that my idol? Okay, Whatever it is, that's what we need to see. Is These are all gifts from God. Not, many of these things that we pursue after are not necessarily sinful in themselves. We take gifts from God that God wants us to have and we turn them into something that we have to have and then we lash out when we don't get them. So the question we need to ask is, how can I keep this from becoming my idol and yet still pursue godliness and goodness? And thirdly, I would say, talk to someone close to you and tell them your struggle. Ask them to give suggestions for change and hold you accountable. One of the great values of having believers in your life, whether that's in your home or in the church or both, is that they can help hold you accountable when these sins start to become part of you, when they start to take over. So, and I think that when we are concerned about sin as God is concerned about th- sin, th- that the things that are gifts in life won't wa- rock our world when they're taken away. So these things that we once desired and we had to have, it, when we make God our greatest treasure, the things of this world, when they're taken away from us, they don't crush us. We can face anything in life as long as we have God. And we can learn much from David and Jonathan and we can learn much from the negative example of Saul as well. And from this chapter we see that we need to have God's interest in view and to pursue His desires, which means that we need to guard against the sins that so easily beset us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the example of these two young men who were concerned primarily about Your glory and Your plan to to make David king, their commitment to one another. And Lord, we, we see ourselves in them often, but we also see ourselves in Saul in that he took something that was a gift and turned it into an idol and ended up turning away from You fully. Never, never to return. And we don't want to get there, Father. We, we don't want to start down that path. So guard our hearts. Keep us um, from evil. Keep our hearts with all diligence. Lord, as we, we seek to, to be complicit with Your Spirit in that process, Lord, strengthen us for this task that You've called us to. It's so easy to, to value You less and the things or the gifts that You give more. And Lord, it's strange, but even the things that are good, like our own families, can turn into idols for us. And Lord, we don't want to go to the other extreme and just discard our families or not care about them or not be concerned about holiness with them. But um, we want to, to, to have a proper balance when it comes to loving them and treasuring them, but, but treasuring you most of all. Lord, help us to know that balance. Help us to enlist other people in our lives um, to, to guard ourselves against idolatry. And we pray that in the end You would be glorified by the display of mercy that You've shown to us. May we be trophies of Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.